Well, I'm indebted to Jill Jarvis, um, who before the service uh, reminded me that there are maps in the back of your Bibles, so if you want to reopen your Bibles and turn to the the back of them. Um, A picture paints a thousand words, they say, um, and maps can do the same. Um, And so I just want you to be aware of the context that we're looking at as as I speak to you this morning. If you pick on the division of Canaan uh, map at the back of your Bibles, we're going to have to do a bit of legwork here in reimagining this for Isaiah's time. But you see Judah down the bottom, um, and Jerusalem was in the top of Judah, which was the southern kingdom. And then um, just a bit above Jerusalem kind of where Gibeon is, we see the start of Israel. Um, And Israel, unlike Judah, stretches from the coast to the Mediterranean Sea across to the land of Ammon um, in the east. Um, And Israel stretches all the way up to the top of Naphtali, where we see Mount Lebanon on the, the Bible's map. Um, and then going over to the right, where you see Damascus uh, mentioned, in, in the time that Isaiah was speaking into, we are into the Assyrian Empire, which was spreading and conquering fast. So hopefully you, you've got something of a visual stimuli there, and my apologies for not finding an image to throw up on the screen. If we recap from the start of this series, Isaiah is speaking to the people of Judah and its capital, Jerusalem. And Isaiah was speaking over quite an extended period of time. He was speaking during the reign of several kings, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. But despite the fact that the people of Judah to whom Isaiah was speaking were God's people and the temple was located in Jerusalem and was the focus point for worship, Judah was a vulnerable nation. It was a minor uh, player compared to its neighbors, (coughs) um, Syria and Israel. And Israel and Syria had formed an alliance against Judah. And then there was the mighty power of the ever-spreading Assyrian Empire to the east of Judah and Israel. And here's the geographical reality. Judah was landlocked. It didn't stretch from the coast like Israel. It was on the west, you've got Philistia. On the right, you've got the Assyrian Empire. Above it, you've got Israel and Syria. Judah is landlocked. And it's landlocked by some pretty aggressive neighbors. Now imagine that you are the leader of Judah, that you're one of the kings of Judah, and whichever way you look, aggression and vulnerability and attack are just around the corner. And we need to understand the vulnerability um, that Isaiah is prophesying and writing into. This was the situation that King Ahaz faced in his kingship of Judah, where in chapter 7 we read of a threat faced by the king of Aram to the north and the son of the king of Israel again to the north. However, in the face of this threat from one of Judah's aggressors, 
God's instruction to Ahaz is clear. We find it in chapter 7, verse 7. It will not take place. It will not happen. This is the invasion. If you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. Do you see how important context is as we read the scriptures? If we just read the text of Isaiah, we might think the choice facing Ahaz is a simple one. Believe God and he will protect you, or don't, and he won't, and you'll have to flee. But when you consider that Judah is a minority player, and the big players like Israel and Syria are against you, the choice becomes all the more daunting. Yet however daunting the choice, Ahaz has a decision to make. Will he be obedient to God and trust in the Lord's protection? Or will, he not be, or will he not be faithful and flee to Assyria? And as the um, passage tells us, Ahaz fails um, to be faithful and runs to the Assyrians for help, which is rather ironic given if you read Isaiah how the course of the relationship with the Assyrians pans out. If you want another example, further on in Isaiah, Hezekiah is faced with the same dilemma. If you were to flick forward to chapter 37, King Sennacherib of Assyria has invaded and the destruction in Israel is vast. Sorry, destruction in Judah is vast. Great swathes of Judah are, are left in desolation. But Jerusalem, the home of the temple, is still standing, but it remains under threat. The king of Assyria sends a challenge to King Hezekiah, and Hezekiah turns to the Lord in prayer, and we see Hezekiah's prayer in chapter 37. Hezekiah lays the threat before the Lord, and the Lord responds. If you're there, you want to pick this up in verse 33 of chapter 37. Therefore, this is what the Lord says concerning the king of Assyria. He will not enter this city or shoot an arrow here. He will not come before it with shield or build a siege ramp against it. By the way he came, he will return. He will not enter this city, declares the Lord. And Hezekiah's choice, like um, Ahaz before him, is either to trust in the Lord or not to trust in the Lord. And Hezekiah chooses to trust and be faithful to God's promise. And by the following morning, an angel of the Lord defeats the armies, the massed armies of the Assyrian Empire. And if geographically, um, you Google later, the, the, the geography of the Assyrian Empire was huge and their armies were equally significant. And an angel of the Lord, in response to Hezekiah's faithfulness to God's promise to him defeated the armies of the Assyrians. So Hezekiah's made a good choice, but if we were to carry on and go through the whole of Isaiah, which sadly we don't have time to do, uh, we would discover that Hezekiah starts to make bad choices. He starts to show off all the wealth of Jerusalem to the Babylonians. Again, ironic if you read the rest of um, uh, Isaiah, given um, that uh, Israel as a people are exiled And the relevance to our passage in Isaiah chapter 9 is that Isaiah is telling us of the kings of Judah and their moral choices. Isaiah is revealing that even though there are kings who make choices for the Lord, 
God still ultimately needs to rescue the people of Judah by sending a godly king who will lead the people of God into his purposes. And so God's response to the unfaithfulness of the kings of Judah is that he will send a king to lead the people of God. How will God bring comfort to a nation which is ultimately exiled? He will send a servant. And how will God address a nation which is struggling with sin? He will send a saviour. And who is this king, servant and saviour? It is Jesus Christ. And we're given a picture of the promised saviour king in Isaiah chapter 9. Into the darkness of Judah a light has dawned. Notice the determination of Isaiah and the scriptures in verse 2. A light has dawned. Not that the light is offered or, or is there um, for people to be invited into, but that the light has dawned and those living in darkness have seen this light. When King Jesus comes, he will bring to light um, the darkness of the world. And this light will bring healing and forgiveness of sin. Ultimately, God's rescue plan for Judah cannot rely on people stumbling across God's light by chance. The truth is, light has come. God's rescue has come, and people will see his light. And so God's assurance of light is as firm as God's assurance of protection to Ahaz and Hezekiah against the aggressors that would come their way. God's promise to the kings of Judah was not that he might protect them. It's that he would, if only they would be faithful and obey him. God's promises to us are sure and, could, and can be stood upon. We can stand upon the promises of the Lord as we seek to live for him in our lives. They are dependable. Light has come into the world in Jesus Christ. Will you set your life upon this promise? Will you make up your mind um, to claim the promises of Scripture that God is with us, that he will bless us and through us we will be a blessing to others? Will you claim the promises of protection in Scripture that God will protect our lives from those who seek to attack us? And what does life look like if we begin to be a people who claim those promises and live our lives according to them? Well, to make up your mind, you need to know something of the character of the one making the promise. So we need to know something about the promised saviour king. But first, let's take a look at verses 3 to 5. Remember the context we explored a bit earlier, that Judah is this small, vulnerable nation. Yet Isaiah tells how God has enlarged the nation and increased their joy. You see, Judah may be geographically small in relation to its neighboring powers, but it is a significant nation because Judah's people are God's people, and Jerusalem is the location of the center of worship. So whilst being geographically small, Judah is a significant um, is significant because it is the Lord's. Do you ever feel that you have little significance in the face of the power and influence of others in your lives? 
And sadly, we encounter people every week whose experience of vulnerability is profound. In the face of people who would exploit the vulnerability of others to drive their own sense of power and self-esteem, we encounter people who are broken. We know the complexities or know something of the complexities of individuals and families whose income and shelter is controlled by others. I don't even pretend to imagine the complexities of the vulnerability of people in Tunisia and Kuwait and France this last week in the face of all the attacks that they have endured. However, God's light has dawned and we along with the people of Judah are invited to live as people of significance, as people of value because of Jesus Christ. When we ground our life in Jesus Christ, our significance comes from being found in him and used to serve his purposes. So let's take a look at the character of this saviour king in verses 6 to 7. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. Now this might seem a bit strange for Isaiah to be saying this. I mean, we're looking back with hindsight and we know that Jesus is born and comes as a child. Um and the angels worship. But Isaiah is prophesying this into a context where the people of Judah are used to strong, charismatic leaders, uh, kings who have armies um, and can subdue aggressors. And that, that is the sort of model of a king that people are used to in the context within which Isaiah is writing. So imagine Isaiah's credibility when he turns around and says, the hope is a child. You might be forgiven for thinking that Isaiah had got it slightly wrong if you don't have the benefit of the whole view of scripture um, and the story of salvation that, that we have. And yet it says, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And this child is Jesus and he will govern his people. But there's a slight tangent here which I just want to explore briefly, which is this. It's the place of children in the life of our church and our communities. Because so often we can downplay the gifts of children and the role even in leadership that they have within worship and within the life of the church. And yet, Isaiah prophesies that a child will be born and this child will be the saviour king. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor. I don't know about you, but I like to surround myself with people who I can go to, who I perceive have gifts of wisdom. People I can go to for good advice. People who I can explore situations and issues with and get some um, insight into. However, as much life experience and intelligence as we might amass, there will always be a limit to our human wisdom. The Apostle Paul tells us that God is renewing our minds. But until God's work in us is complete, there is a limit to the wisdom we can amass. And in Isaiah, Ahaz, Jotham, Hezekiah, Uzziah and other kings in the region had intelligence, but what some of them lacked was faith and obedience to God. Isaiah tells of what the promised saviour as a wonderful counsellor, 
would look like. Someone who would give us divine wisdom, who guides our thoughts, words and actions by his spirit. And the lesson of Isaiah is that when God speaks and the kings listen, obey and trust, God protects them, blesses them and defeats their aggressors. Isaiah tells us of a mighty God. And in the context of a nation, a people under threat, Isaiah ascribes to God the title of mighty. And both in chapter 7 in verse 3 and in chapter 10 verse 21, you might have to read them later, we read about the remnant of God's people returning to their land. And the might of God in this context is both about the judgment of God over the brokenness of his people because, you know, God speaks the truth to us in love. But where God brings judgment, he also brings grace. The remnant shall return. God is mighty to save his people. Everlasting Father. In Isaiah's time, the reign of a king could be short depending on the decisions they made and their faithfulness to God. And there's a reminder for us here that our strength and our ability to keep going with the Lord involves faithfulness and obedience. And obedience is not an attractive word in our time, is it? We don't like to obey. Uh, And if someone tells us, um, you will do this, instinctively there's a defensive barrier that says, no, I won't. Who are you to tell me what to do? I think it's, it's a cultural condition that we, we find that we have a, an issue with obedience. And as I, I, as I look forward um, to imminently becoming a father, I've been watching parents in this church, um, parenting their children, and I've seen some masterclasses on display, and I owe you a debt of thanks for the wisdom I've seen. The way you have cajoled and encourage your children to make good choices by not telling them, put your coat on, get out the door, and so on, has just been amazing. And there's something about the Father heart of God um, that we see in Isaiah which reflects that. The kings of Judah are called to obedience, but remember that God offers his protection. He gives his protection to the kings of Judah, but they have to be faithful and obey and stand in that protection to realize it. Um, And there's something about the nature of God as father in this, as someone who is wise and as someone who desires the best for his children. That gives us an image of Jesus as our saviour. And the word being used by Isaiah for father is not the same word as used of father in the Trinity. But speaks more of Isaiah's vision of Jesus as, as a kind of kingly father to his people who loves and cares for them. Finally, Prince of Peace. Perhaps most poignantly this week as we've witnessed um, peace shattered um, all across the world. We've seen terrible attacks on various groups. And Isaiah, as we've explored along with the people of Judah, knew what a fragile peace or even the absence of peace looked like. 
And during times of conflict and dispute, wise and just decisions on the part of leaders matter. This kind of saviour king who will bring peace contrasts with even the best qualities and attempts of the kings of Judah. Why? Because this saviour king is the Messiah, is Jesus Christ. He is God, and above all the turmoil of the world, including the turmoil of our present time, God reigns, and God will order his creation again to bring peace. So we have a vision of the promised saviour and his character, but where do we fit in? Well, take your minds back to Genesis and to the uh, promise of Abraham, or promise to Abraham, I think somewhere around Genesis 12, that, that he would be a channel of God's blessing to people for generations to come if he would be faithful to God's promises. And Isaiah continues this channel of blessing, if you like, by speaking the truth to Judah in love. Um, The people of Judah, um, if you like, have become morally bankrupt. But Isaiah speaks into that with grace so that people's minds may be refocused on Jesus Christ and they may reclaim um, their identity as the people of God. And we are invited this morning to refocus our attention on our Saviour Jesus, our Saviour King. And if we are to refocus our lives on Jesus Christ and place him as the cornerstone upon which we build, then we can too become a channel of blessing to his people. So I finished... um, preparing for this talk it just occurred to me that we see those those job interview or job adverts where it says experience is not essential because training will be given experience is not essential because training will be given and there's something in that that you know the invitation to the kings of judah was not to stand on their skill or amassed experience but was to stand on the promises of god who would train them if they would be faithful and obedient to him the thing that we need to do most in our lives is, is involve the work of the Spirit so that our lives may be renewed into his likeness day by day and we may serve his purposes. And if you feel inadequate or insignificant, um, then imagine the kings of Judah looking round and looking at their aggressors and equally feeling inadequate and insignificant in the face of all that threat. We are people of significance and value, not because of any merit of our own, but because our lives are grounded in Jesus Christ. Let's pray.